McBurn, and thanks for the invitation to be uh, present at the present at the uh, EU. Uh, I always enjoy coming, and uh, I trust that it will be helpful and profitable for you too. The uh, Evangelical Union uh, has, as you can see on various outlines here, something called the Fundamentals of Our Faith, which is the doctrinal basis of the Evangelical Union. Uh, this is an important document to me. When I first uh, entered university, um, it was reading the doctrinal basis that made me clear that I was an evangelical Christian and that I should join the Evangelical Union. There were various options in those days, and joining the EU was only one of them, but it was perfectly clear to me that that's the uh, group of Christians that I wanted to associate with. The doctrinal basis, plus the objects, of course, namely to present students with the Christian gospel and lead them to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was me, and therefore joining the EU was the obvious thing to do. Uh, the doctrinal basis also helped me to structure my Christian faith. Uh, I was a Christian, I had been born again and come to a living faith in Jesus. Uh, I had various ideas, of course, about uh, the Christian faith, including that the Bible was the authority and all those things, but the doctrinal basis helped me to structure it, get my mind around it. And so uh, I do commend it to you and I congratulate the present EU leadership uh, for having these lectures on the doctrinal basis. Important thing to do and I'm glad it's being done. I hope uh, that it continues to be done. Last, I presume, that last time you uh, had a lecture here, you were talking about number one, the divine inspiration and infallibility of Holy Scripture as originally given and its supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. I'll just confirm with the President that that was true. Yes, and I'm sure it was brilliantly done, whoever did it. That leads me to the second, however, and you'll see it there, the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. There is a logical order here, uh, particularly in this, uh, in this connection. The logical order is that we couldn't know about the nature of God unless by revelation. It's not something that we can easily come to by human reason. We do need to be told it. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is what we're talking about here, would not cross any human mind, I wouldn't think. Uh, it is something that has been revealed to us. That's not to say it's irrational. That's not to say that it doesn't make sense. But only that it catches us completely by surprise. And we wouldn't come to it by investigation, but by revelation. So I'm not claiming to uh, speak to you today and say, right, on the basis of human reason, I can construct the unity of the Godhead and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, why could I do that? I am assuming always the revelation to be found in Scripture, which teaches us the truth about God. So it's not by investigation, but by revelation. Notwithstanding that, however, I would say this that when we come to Revelation, when we do understand it, uh, it makes sense of experience. Uh, Revelation is like a pair of glasses. I'm, I was born uh, uh, half blind with, um, well that's an exaggeration, but it feels half blind with short sight. And uh, I can still remember uh, my first pair of glasses and putting on my first pair of glasses when I was eight years old and realising what other people could see. Uh, I hadn't realised that you'd see a, a hundred metre race right from the beginning to the end, for example. I thought the idea was you only just saw them when they came and things like that and it made a whole, bit, a whole lot of difference to the way I played cricket, I can tell you. So, 
the Bible, God's revelation of himself, is a bit like putting on your glasses when you're short-sighted. You suddenly see the world which you had been looking at before, but you now see it in a new way. And the revelation makes sense of experience, though you couldn't move from experience to the things that God reveals to us. But experience, I would say, is confirmed by revelation, is explained by revelation, and also in some ways opens the way for revelation. That is to say, there are certain things which we experience which leave us looking for more, which leave us thinking, I wonder how this world was created, which lead us, which raise questions for us, which revelation clearly answers. Now, in this whole area uh, of the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Godhead, uh, I want to comment on five points. You'll notice my outline there, which is very useful indeed. It's completely blank, uh, with good reason. This is very disconcerting being here, I tell you, because I can see a T-shirt available today, only $18 signed here. I keep feeling I'm being urged to do something. (laughs) It's great. Interesting designs, too. Anyhow, please don't. It's okay. I've got enough t-shirts. The five points I want to make is, are as follows, if you want to make notes, the one God, and then obviously, second point, the Father, third point, you've guessed it, the Son, fourth point, the Spirit, and then fifthly, the unity of the Godhead. So, the one God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the unity of the Godhead. Fairly obvious, uh, and we'll take them in terms. So, first of all, the one God. Now, the fact that there is only one God is one of those intimations, one of those hints that many people do have without revelation. Uh, The sense of there being the divine is fairly well universal. Uh, Of course, there are atheists, have always been atheists, but they're very much in a minority, actually. Most people feel that there is something beyond, uh, that there is a divine God, something like this. And even where you find people who believe in many gods, often they have the idea that there's one God above and beyond these many gods. So in experience, in human experience, there is that which points beyond itself without being clear, without being terribly clear. But when we come to Jesus Christ and the teaching of Jesus Christ and therefore the teaching of the Bible that flows from the teaching of Jesus Christ, uh, we see this good, strong, clear testimony to the fact that there is one God. There is one God uh, the, uh, and as our Apostles' Creed says, a very ancient document, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit. But one God. How do we know? Well, ultimately because Jesus Christ and the Bible tell us that there is but one God. Furthermore, this one God is the creator of all things. Uh, there is nothing which does not bear the imprint of this God. It's not as though he's created some things, it's not as though he's created any of the world, but the whole universe uh, is created by someone else, or, or perhaps by itself. No, the Bible's picture is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, the, and one of the meanings of that first chapter of Genesis in the Bible is to say, look, wherever you go, wherever you look, wherever you can penetrate with your intellectual and your scientific disciplines, God is there. He has created all these things. It bears his marks upon it. Hence, there is order in what is created. Uh, Just imagine, for example, if you believed in many gods. Uh, Many people who have ever lived have believed in many gods. They believed in a polytheistic world, the world of many gods. I suppose 
Humanly speaking, that's one of the most popular beliefs there is, that there are many spirits. And you can see it sort of makes sense of experience. Because if you lived in a world and you didn't have a knowledge of the true God, or the one God, you may well think, well, the, the storm is very powerful, that must be a God. The river is very powerful, there must be God in the river. Uh, there must be God in the animals, they're very powerful. You may well populate the world in which you live, as the ancient Greeks did, as so many other people have done. You may populate the ancient world with many spirits, many gods perhaps. Uh, in, the, uh, in the Greek world, the Hellenic world, around the time of the Bible, those gods, it was thought, were invisible, but they more or less lived amongst the human population, almost one step up from the human population. Uh, gods, yes, but not the supreme god or anything like it. Now, that sort of makes sense of the experience of the world, in which there is chaos as well as order. And if you push the chaos element, you may well feel that this world has many gods, many spirits within it. But once you come to the view that there is one God, one God who has created all things, then you have the sense of order in the world. And Genesis chapter 1 tells us about that ordered creation of the world. The one sovereign God who rules all things who makes all things happen in accordance with his will, said the Bible. That means too that uh, if you believe in many gods, you believe in spheres of influence. You might believe there's a god of the body, and a, there's a god of uh, artillery perhaps, and there's a god of this and a god of that. And those gods will have spheres of influence. But if you believe in one god, you believe that wherever you go, you will meet the same god. No matter how, how far you travel, no matter into what culture you move, no matter what bit of your experience you're talking about, you're still dealing with the one God. I'm trying to intimate to you, if you've never thought of it before, the massive implications of that. If you move from polytheism to monotheism, the one God who is everywhere, you only have to deal with one. But one of the problems uh, in the ancient world and in so much of the modern world is that you have to deal with many gods. Uh, you, have to, you have to relate to many spirits uh, who may impact on your life. And there's always a bit of an unknown, a bit of uh, uncertainty about the spirit world. When the Bible declared there was only one God, it was saying, no, wherever you go, you only have to relate to one. And because this one has revealed himself, that sense of insecurity, of uncertainty uh, goes. You know where he stands. You know where you stand with him. The Bible refers to him as the Alpha and the Omega, the A, A and the Z. The one who created all things, the one who is at the end of all things. The creator and the redeemer. The one who both creates and saves where necessary. Only one God, not two gods. So not many gods, but yet not no God. Now, Christianity is a very atheistic religion. If you believe in Christianity, you abolish about 50,000 gods that other people believe in. You simply say, no, I don't believe in that. In fact, Christianity is as close to atheism as you can get. The atheists say, no God, we say one God. There you are, everyone else goes up from there. So, we are great non-believers in gods. Terrific non-believers. We, we simply don't believe in the existence or the importance of these other spirit beings. But as we draw close to atheism, we don't quite properly believe. We say, no, 
The atheist is wrong too. There is one God who has created all things. Atheists, uh, I met a lady the other day, I was on, on the radio, and this lady said to me afterwards, and she was on there too, she said, I'm a Protestant atheist, she said. And I thought, what a brilliant description. She knows the God she doesn't believe in. It's the Protestant God. And I think you'll find generally, generally, that amongst atheists, it is not so much they don't believe in, they don't believe in any God at all, as even possible. It is a particular God they are rebelling against. It's a, it's a mark of defiance, I believe, not always of course, but I think it's a mark of defiance very often, against a particular picture of God, or a particular God, that they have decided not to believe in. The Protestant atheist is almost saying, yes, of course there's God but I choose to, to let him have no power in my life at all. The Protestant atheist. The other thing about this one God, before we go uh, further into, into talking about the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, is that uh, God is a sort of title, it's a generic mm, word, I guess. But in the Bible we find the most characteristic way of describing this one God, in the end, is Father. He reveals himself to us with his name, Yahweh, or Lord, as we may say, but in the end, the name that we most characteristically call him as Christian people, at least, is Father, the Father God. And in doing so, we are, we are of course, uh, reminding ourselves that he is the creator of all things, and all things, particularly all human beings, are his children at one level, but also the word Father is not just simply a description of the way he is the Father of all human beings, but more significantly, the word Father is an invitation. It's an invitation to human beings to make good of that childhood, if you like, to become the sons and daughters of the living God. He is called Father. You don't sort of automatically join his family. Uh, you have to, if you like, choose or be invited to join his family. Well then, let's move to the second of the headings then, the Father, God the Father. God himself is called the Father. That's true. And yet, the issue here, and there's an issue with each of these, the issue here is, is he alone? Is he alone? Now, in one sense, the Bible tells us he's not alone. From the very beginning, there have been other spirit beings, angels and so forth, who have surrounded his throne, the cherubim and the seraphim, etc., etc., all those angelic beings. Uh, sometimes people, it's very funny sometimes when people talk about uh, the idea that Christians may be shaken if we discover life on other planets, that the whole Christian thing will fall down. Well, we've always believed that the universe is filled with life of all sorts. Uh, I can't see what life on another planet would show us, except it would be very interesting, I think, if you know all about it. Uh, but the Father, is he alone? Now, the very name itself, Father, suggests child, or if you like, son. I've said that in one sense, all human beings are the children of God in one sense, I've said that those who accept this invitation become his special sons and daughters. That's true. But if he is eternally father, if he doesn't just become father when he creates, but he actually is eternally father, then it suggests, does no more than that, uh, that there is more than just merely father, there must be in some sense son or child. So with love, uh, we're told, the Bible tells us so, I have no other uh, word for it, and no other uh, 
justification for saying it, we're told that God is love. God is love. But if he is on his own, if he alone is God, and he is lonely and on his own, who is it that he loves? And we may say to ourselves that the love, the God who is love, needs to have a beloved. Does love only spring forth in God when he creates, for example? Or is there something eternal in the heart of God where there is love and there is the beloved one? Is God's love an eternal attribute of God? The Bible would suggest so. But then that suggests that once you've called God Father and you've located that there is one God, there is something more to be said. And that indeed is what the Bible says, that there is something more to be said. There's no doubting the complete deity of this God. He is the sovereign, true Lord of the universe, the one true God, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, he, uh, he rules all things. He, is, he will never die. Uh, he has all sorts of attributes, like um, he's completely righteous and holy. Uh, there are all sorts of things you may say about this God and call him Father. But does the word Father itself point to some other deeper thing about him? than we know already. And that brings me to the, the Son. One of the great uh, facts of history, of course, is that there was a man, Jesus Christ. Uh, a man who lived in a particular time, a particular place. A man who is uh, under Pontius Pilate, was put to death. All these things are a matter of sheer historical record. The uh, idea of doubting it uh, is uh, a, a bit foolish. It is perfectly clear too from the records that we have that this Jesus Christ was truly a man. Uh, he wasn't an angel in disguise. Uh, he wasn't a half-hybrid sort of man, but that he is truly man. Uh, the New Testament that tells us about him tells us that he slept, for example, in the boat. We're wondering where that came in. Uh, that he ate. Uh, then he had special friends. Within the twelve, he had two or three who were his special friends. That was human beings too. Uh, he was born uh, as human being. Uh, it tells us that he wept. It tells us he was hungry. Uh, it tells us he was thirsty. Talked to him. It doesn't describe his face. But undoubtedly, he had nappy rash when he was a baby. And he probably had bad teeth. Who can tell? But uh, he was truly man. You could certainly, if you wanted to, you could take him and uh, nail him to a tree. You could do that. And you could actually kill him. Now God neither slumbers nor sleeps. God doesn't need the food. Even though a thousand animals are sacrificed to God, he doesn't eat the animals. He doesn't need food. God is spirit, which means that he is invisible to us. Uh, God never dies. You can't kill God. So the manhood of Jesus, which is well established and believed, seems to indicate that there's a difficulty in thinking of him as God. And the manhood of Jesus is utter and complete. There is no doubt about it at all. In fact, the New Testament really portrays Jesus as continuing to be man. If you ask yourself, is he still man? The answer is yes. He has become man, and he is man. For us. But is there more to it than that? 
Now, uh, time does not permit a thorough review of the entire evidence here. In fact, uh, we would need many lectures and, and books. Uh, but let me indicate to you the, the lines of inquiry as far as that is concerned. Uh, as far as Jesus is concerned, first of all we notice that, uh, yes, he is truly man, but also at crucial points he acted, if you like, in the place of or as God. Uh, there's a story early in Mark's Gospel, for example, where uh, a sick man is let down through the roof so that Jesus could heal him. And uh, Jesus, rather than healing him straight away, this is Mark 2, verse 7, uh, Jesus, rather than healing him straight away, announces that his sins are forgiven. Now, it's all very well if you offended me and I said, I forgive you, that's okay, I can do that. But I can't forgive you for the way you've treated your sister. I can, sort of, actually. I never had a sister, but I can understand they can be very irritating. Uh, I'm only kidding, I'm only kidding. Um, sorry I didn't have a sister. I can't forgive you for how you've treated other people. I can't forgive you for the things you've done which are offensive to God. I can't forgive you because they haven't been aimed at me. Only God can forgive sins. And when Jesus declared the forgiveness of this man's sins, instantly his enemies who were in the room listening to him burst out and said, how can he say that? Only God can forgive sins. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And it was then that Jesus healed them. Jesus is acting God in a way that certainly drew the critical comment of those around him. They knew what he was doing. But he not only acted God, so to speak, he specifically claimed to be God and accepted worship. In John 9, for example, verse 58 in the New Testament, John's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 58, again, uh, talking to those who were, by that stage, his enemies, sorry, I said 9, I meant 8. So I hope I did. Yes, I did. 858. Now, some of you have written down 9. I'll say it again. It's 858. Even so, there are five people in the room who haven't changed it and never will, no matter what I say. Okay, 858. His enemies said, You're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, there's an extraordinary claim. Before Abraham, 2,000 years earlier, was born, I am. But it's all the more extraordinary. He's not just claiming to have been alive before Abraham was born. He's claiming, by using the words, I am, to be God himself. Because that is the way in which God revealed himself to Moses. I am. And, of course, the reaction uh, was that they picked up stones to stone him to death because they'd heard a great blasphemy which they had. Either this man was blaspheming or he was mad. Some people thought that, including his own family, but then families often think of that. Or he was speaking the truth. Later on in John's Gospel, chapter 20, after his death on the cross and his resurrection, and his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection from the dead, by the way, doesn't prove that he was God. 
Uh, I hope that all of us are going to be resurrected from the dead. Don't prove that you're God. Uh, it's not his resurrection from the dead that proves that he's God. It's his resurrection from the dead, as he said he would be, which showed that what he said was the truth, including his claim to be God. Can I put it like that? And then Thomas, doubting Thomas, says that he doesn't believe that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And then Jesus appears and asks Thomas to reach out his hand and put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Verse 28, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Now again, here Jesus is accepting the worship of a human being, another human being, and therefore claiming to be God himself. He accepted that worship. Furthermore, the New Testament writers teach this doctrine that he is God. It's stated in John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, uh, speaks about Jesus as the Word of God. And this is what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Very fascinating opening to this Gospel. He was, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, says Genesis, in the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. Now those, that little way of putting it signals that something's going on here. Was with God, partnered with God in some way, and yet was God. And the New Testament teaches this at any number of points. Uh, for example, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, um, and, uh, I'm sorry, not, no, no, wrong, wrong reference. Ignore that. Hebrews 2 verse 8. Hebrews 2 verse 8, speaking of Christ, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and in a number of other ways. But furthermore, the New Testament joins God with Jesus with God. Joins Jesus with God at quite a number of points. Now take the famous grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God. If I'd said the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and all the blessings of the angel Gabriel, that would really sound odd. But it's the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit whose fellowship is with you evermore. An indication of the way the New Testament thinks of Jesus and indeed the Holy Spirit. The New Testament teaches that he is God but insists that there is only one God. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is uh, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. There is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. How can he mediate between man and God? Well, if you and I were inventing salvation, we would say, oh, by becoming half man and half God. But the way that God does it is that he who is truly God also becomes truly man. Two natures, one person, both truly God and truly man, and therefore mediating between man and God. One God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. Furthermore, and lastly under this heading of the Son, Son is not another name for the Father. Now sometimes in Christian history people have said, okay, well really what we're seeing here is that the Old Testament revealed that God is the Father, 
the New Testament reveals that God is the Son, and then after the New Testament we see that God is the Holy Spirit. But we're really dealing here with one God with three names, or four names, or five names. But that's not how the Bible reveals the relationship between Father and Son. Again, to refer to John's Gospel, for example, John 5, 18 to 20. Jesus says, verse 17, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Uh, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And it goes on, Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself, but he can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. The relationship that we see there, we see described there, is a relationship between, if you like, I'll say the word persons. I think that's the best way of saying it. Between persons. Not between people, but between persons. Between entities, if you like. More of that in a minute. But certainly not a relationship in which the Father is talking to himself but rather father and son equal and yet distinct. That's the message that the New Testament gives us. So sometimes people, uh, when they're trying to explain this doctrine, uh, will suggest that there is one God with many names, and that is a totally inadequate way of talking about what the Bible reveals. So the issue before us when we come to the Father is, is he alone? Is it just the Father? I'm saying the answer is yes, in one sense he is alone, but in another sense, no. God is love. The issue that comes before us with the Son is, is he God? The answer is, he certainly claimed to be, and the New Testament certainly taught him so. And if you want to be a Christian, then you must treat him so. That's who he is. Thirdly, the Spirit. Now the question of the Spirit is not so much whether the Spirit is God. That point is well and truly established in the Old Testament itself. So, for example, and there are many passages, but Psalm 139, verse 17, Psalm 139, verse 17, uh, speaks of the Spirit of God like this. And I thought it did. It's actually seven. I'm trying to trick myself here. Sorry. That's it. I, I wrote down seven. This was better. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The presence of God is the spirit of God. Uh, the spirit of God is the presence of God. God present amongst his people. And in that verse, and in many verses in the Old Testament, it's perfectly clear that the spirit of God is another way of saying like sometimes it speaks about the hand of God or the eyes of God. The Spirit of God is a way of speaking about God himself in his presence amongst us and his power amongst us. The issue is not, therefore, whether the Holy Spirit is divine. That is clear. The question with the Holy Spirit is, 
Is he personal? Is he just a sort of quality of God, an attribute of God, like God's hand or God's eye or something like this, or God's omnipresence or something? Or is he truly one to address? Has he got personal qualities? Do we refer to the Holy Spirit as it, the power of God, or do we refer to the Holy Spirit as he, the personal pronoun? Well, uh, again, the revelation that he is personal uh, largely awaits the New Testament. Uh, if you have a look at uh, St. John's Gospel, for example, 14, John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 16, me, says Jesus, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now though that language there is inconsistent with anything else but to believe that he is a person, separate from the Father and the Son, uh, clearly equal with Father and Son. He is the presence of the Father and the Son in our midst, but not the Father and not the Son. So also in Ephesians 4 verse 30, which we won't look up now, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit. And there are other personal attributes of the Holy Spirit spoken of in the Bible. The Holy Spirit groans within you, for example. So in dealing with the Holy Spirit, we speak of one who is both truly God and truly personal. Where, do, where does all this finish up? My fifth point, the unity of the Godhead. Strange to use the word Godhead. It's not one, a word that we use very often. Uh, it's a somewhat vague word. It can simply, simply mean God, the unity of God. It can mean the essence of God, the Godhead, the thing that makes God, God. And the issue for us here as we consider the unity of the Godhead is how then does this one God relate within himself? How then does this one God relate within himself? Now the passage that I like here is helpful is Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus, just as he's uh, uh, leaving his disciples finally, orders them to go and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. You know, notice he doesn't say baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the angel Gabriel. It's the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. This bringing together of these three now I'm going to use the word persons I can't think of a better word it doesn't mean there are three people but it does mean three persons if you like three personal persons uh, who are together in the one God notice that uh, in this verse how very very clear or how very very careful it is baptising them in the name of one name because there's one God in the name he doesn't say baptising them in the names of, but in the name of one God. Then he doesn't say baptising them in the name of Father, Son and Holy Spirit as though there are three names for the one God. He says baptising them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. In other words, distinguishing the three from one another. United in one name and yet distinguished in the three names. 
each of which is a personal name for the one who bears it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, three equal and yet one. Furthermore, and although uh, this verse doesn't prove this, but it uh, reflects it, this one God has an order. There is an order in the, in the divine. We, the Father is characteristically thought of as first, the Son second, the Spirit third. Not an order of inequality, mind you, but an order of being in this one divine God, this one being of God. God is three within himself, and yet these three are ordered. They are not mere manifestations of the one God. They are in themselves, if you like, persons within the one God. Now, over the years, people have tried to work out how this can be, and it wouldn't surprise you to know that we don't know how it could be. If you could explain God, then you would be God himself, if you like. What God has explained to us, we have. What we don't know about God would be, obviously, far more than that. Certainly it ought not to surprise you that God is far more profound and is not. you are just one person in one body, I realise that. The idea that there might be three within you uh, might lead you to a hospital or something like that, but it wouldn't, uh, uh, it wouldn't be something that you would, uh, would welcome. But, with, but you ought not to be surprised, I take it from you are, that God is far more profound in his own self, in his own being, than we are in our own being. What else would you expect? Sometimes people say that this doctrine of the Trinity is, 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 is ridiculous or difficult to understand. Well, of course, it is difficult to understand, but it's not ridiculous. It is exactly what you would expect if God is God, that he would be different from us in this respect. Uh, two or three little errors, big errors that people make that I refer to in a small way, uh, one is called Sabellianism, and I've referred to it already. The idea that there is one God but three aspects to the one God, like triangles of three sides or something like that. Please don't use illustrations. Almost all of them are hopeless. Most of them are heretical. Uh, it's best to say I, there is no illustration I can use to describe how three persons in one God. Uh, it's not something that we can illustrate uh, from the world around us, as you would expect. Uh, the other is what's called Arianism in which uh, the way of explaining there is one God is to say, well, the Jesus and the Holy Spirit are lesser gods. They're not the same. They don't have the same essential being as the one God, the Father. So as to make the Father then the true God and the Son and the Spirit lesser gods. Now, the trouble with that, apart from it not being in the Bible, the trouble with that is that if we're saved through Jesus, we're not saved through God. We're saved through a lesser being. Uh, when God so loved the world, it is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who loved the world and, uh, and uh, brought about our salvation. We are truly saved by the true God. And when you, when you confront Jesus Christ, you may be sure you are confronting God, God the Son. Uh, when you are confronting the Holy Spirit, you may be sure you are confronting God, not some lesser being, some creature of God, but God in himself. Uh, speaking to you and reaching out to you in that way. Well, the uh, doctrinal basis, brief though it is, is absolutely right to make this uh, a fundamental point because it is thoroughly what the Bible teaches and it is absolutely indispensable to the Christian gospel. Over the years, many people have drifted away from it 
gone their own way, set up denominations, uh, created heresies from it, and every time we've discovered that it goes down a wrong road. That ultimately, if you want to save the gospel, if you want to preach the true gospel, if you want to preach uh, and teach the truth of the Bible, it will be by believing in the unity of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. One God, three persons. Not that there is God with three persons, but that this God is three persons in the one God. Different and yet unified. One God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not one less than the other, but all equal. Not God with three other sort of hangers on, but the one God who is three, and the one God who is one. Ordered within himself. The God who is love, and love from all eternity. When we say that there is one God alone, we don't mean that he is solitary. And one of the differences between the Christian doctrine of the Trinity and, uh, say, the Muslim belief, is this precise difference that uh, in the Muslim, which is a strongly monotheistic belief, there is no sense of the divine love uh, and the love between the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, obviously, the love from all eternity, uh, which the Bible reveals. Well, does this make sense of experience? I have no time to answer that question, but let me tell you, yes it does. But in the end it makes sense of all our experience of being human beings. Uh, the relational God whom we worship is the God of relationships. And far from the doctrine of the Trinity being an embarrassment or being something we ought to be steer away from, it is one of the glories of Christianity and one of the great safeguards of the gospel.